Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This year, the gig economy is on the ballot, at least in California, and it's shaping up to be the most expensive ballot proposition ever. Prop 22 will decide whether gig economy companies can classify workers as employees or independent contractors. The spending on this is huge, with gig economy companies shelling out $184 million to help pass it, and just $10 million for the opposition. For more on the story that will definitely have impact on gig workers in California, we'll speak to Kia Kokolicheva, tech and business reporter at Axios. There is a California law that went into effect at the beginning of the year that codified much stricter requirements for companies to be able to classify workers as contractors instead of employees. And already Uber and Lyft have been sued by the state attorney general over it to force them to comply. Other companies are facing more local legal challenges over it. And basically all these companies, as much as they've been saying that it doesn't apply to them because they're not in the business of transportation or what have you, you can tell they're deeply uncomfortable with this law. And so Prop 22 would basically codify a sort of exemption and allow them to continue to classify their drivers for rides and delivery and things like that as contractors, but they're also trying to look like they're coming to the table with something. And so it would force them to also contribute some amount of money to provide some level of benefits that these drivers could tap into. Yeah, these big companies have said that it really changes their whole business model and they probably would not be able to operate in the same way. I think Uber and Lyft even threatened to cancel their operations in California unless a a judge put a stop to it for the meantime so they can wait until the November election as they're going through their court battle on all of this. So it really could impact a lot of different companies. As I mentioned, DoorDash, Uber, Instacart, Lyft, all these that have these kind of gig economy workers. What do we know about what the polls say so far about its possibility of passing? Well, there's not been as much polling on this particular proposition as a lot of things that are up for voting in November, but UC Berkeley came out with a poll last month. It gave the yes camp just a slight edge over the no camp, but there's still like 25% undecided. And that's kind of what a lot of other smaller independent polls have also found. So despite all the money that the companies are throwing at this, it doesn't look like it's something that's sealed for them and that they are sure to win. A lot of undecided voters, a lot of folks just vote no on principle. A lot of folks just don't vote at all on these propositions. So it's still very much up in the air. And unlike the presidential election where people often tend to make their minds up a lot earlier, these ballot propositions, a lot of people are uninformed or, you know, make the decision on the fly or like you said, don't even vote at all on it. So yeah, we're going to have to wait until this thing passes. And it's important to note that You know, California is such a huge state that other states and other places really take notes off of what happens there. So the worry is that, you know, if this passes, then uh, other states can uh, kind of do similar laws and things like that. Okay, let's get into the meat of it, though, the money angle. How much is being spent on this proposition? So the Yes Camp, so that's all the companies, they have so far contributed about $1.5 
184, give or take, million on the campaign, which is a lot. (laughs) The no camp is only up to about 10 or 11 million right now, which is mostly (laughs) labor unions and labor advocates and that sort of thing. So you can tell just how existential this battle is for these companies. I want to do a quick breakdown only because so you can see how much each company is spending. Uber is spending 50 million, Lyft 48 million, DoorDash 47 million, Instacart 28 and Postmates 11 million. So as you mentioned, lots at stake for these companies. And then they're also facing some criticism for how these gig companies, you know, the campaign tactics that they're using because they're putting notifications on the apps for the drivers and for the customers. They're trying to get into these slate mailers as well. And a lot of people are saying, hey, you know, with all this money, you're just trying to get the word out there, obviously, but it's kind of unfair. As we discussed earlier, you know, a lot of folks don't really know about the propositions that are on their ballots. So there really is a gap in education that just inherently exists when it comes to propositions like that. And these companies are not afraid to use their own influence over their customers and their users. They've done this before. They did it in New York when the Blasio wanted to put some restrictions. They are really not afraid to turn their own customers into their advocates and their political allies. And they have apps that are being used by millions of people. So they're going to use them if it's legal. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how this one plays out as we've been talking about tons of money. But beyond that, you know, these companies the future of these companies and all the employee, uh, I just fell for it. Employees or independent contractors will know how it happens after that. You know, a lot of their uh, jobs are going to be at stake also, depending on what happens and how the business model is going to change after that. So definitely something to keep an eye on because it could have far reaching ramifications. Kia Kokolicheva, tech and business reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Something else to look out for in California, when will the theme parks come back? Disney and the city of Anaheim is in a battle with the state to reopen Disneyland and get back to normal. Full guidelines on reopening have not been released, but we do know some of the requirements. The park would be limited to 25% capacity and restricted to visitors that live within 120 miles. For more on the story, we'll speak to Tarpley Hit, reporter at the Daily Beast. Disney obviously closed back in March, and they had initially planned to reopen in July, right, when Disney World was going to reopen. But at that time, Governor Newsom had not yet released reopening guidelines for theme parks. And so after making this big announcement, oh, we're going to reopen, they actually backtrack and say, okay, we're actually just going to open this small retail and restaurant strip, the downtown Disney district. And so since then, they've sort of been in this back and forth with Newsom over when can we reopen, when are you going to release these guidelines. And about two weeks ago, Gavin Newsom was getting ready to release the reopening guidelines, I believe on Friday, October 2nd. And then before he could, former Disney CEO and now I believe executive chairman Bob Iger saw a copy of the guidelines and quit the governor's COVID-19 economic recovery task force in protest. It's unclear exactly what he saw on the guidelines that concerned him, but it seems like because COVID-19 is a pretty infectious disease that there was going to be limits on capacity at the theme park. So they were only going to allow 25% capacity, it seems, based on Anaheim officials who saw the drafts. They were also going to place limits on 
where visitors could come from. So people would have to stay from around the Southern California area. They couldn't come from, you know, New York. Yeah, they had to reside um, within 120 miles is, is what we're hearing, which puts a lot of people that want to travel and come to the park. You know, it's so tourism heavy there. That's probably something that they did not like seeing. But, you know, you also got to think about the people that are working at the park. You know, it's important to keep them safe. As you know, in Disney World, they implemented a system where the people who staffed the park were getting tested daily on site. And some of the workers who have gone back to work at the downtown Disney district have been concerned that Disney did not implement on-site testing for the staff there. So that's sort of an ongoing thing also in the figuring out how to reopen amusement parks is how are we going to keep the people that run this place safe. And figuring out how to keep the people there safe. But on the flip side of that, you know, Disney has had to lay off, I think it was 28,000 workers overall, but a lot of them did come from California. A lot of them were part-time workers who didn't qualify for some of the benefits that they had, but there was also full-time workers. And I know unions are working with Disney to figure out how that is all going to turn out. So workers that were previously there and furloughed and all, they've been hit really hard as well. You know, a lot of these people are part-time workers, which means that they didn't work enough hours to qualify for things like childcare or healthcare. But some of the people that were laid off did qualify for all of those things. And now in the middle of a global pandemic, they will no longer have health insurance or may no longer have health insurance still being hashed out between the unions and Disney. There's criticisms on all sides as we were talking about there. You know, there's criticism against Governor Gavin Newsom and the leadership there. The OC Healthcare Agency director, Dr. Clayton Chow, did green light the parks to reopen. So they're in a rush to get back to business. They're looking for these guidelines. But at the same time, as they're getting blowback, Disney executives are also getting blowback for laying off all these workers. But actually, you know, they took pay cuts at the beginning of this thing, but now they're returning back to regular pay levels. So that's another criticism there that Disney leadership is getting. So back in late March, Bob Iger announced, I'm going to forego my entire salary. And Bob Chapek was taking a 50% pay cut. And the vice presidents were taking between 20 and 30% salary cuts. Those announcements were a little bit misleading because obviously with executive pay, you get a certain amount as a base salary, and then you get a lot more in terms of performance bonuses. So for example, I believe Bob Iger's salary that he was foregoing was about two and a half million dollars, but he was going to make several times more that in sort of long-term bonuses. So this was represented a modest pay cut, in fact. But then in late August, they announced in a letter to shareholders that they were going to restore the pre-pandemic salaries of all of those executives. And then a month and six days after that, they lay off 28,000 people. So that's definitely caught some flack. Yeah. You know, we're hearing that Disneyland is going to adopt the recommendations from the county health agency to reopen, but they need to get the green light from the governor as well. So it's just a tough thing. You know, a lot of people want to get back to work. The city of Anaheim suffers because businesses around there rely on Disneyland as a big economic driver. It's really tough and it doesn't seem like it's going to open anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky thing. It's sort of like this situation that a lot of businesses are in right now where it's like they want to reopen, but health officials are not saying that it's entirely safe for indoor activities or activities with a lot of people to open. And that's a real catch-22. It might be softened if there were perhaps programs that could support people while they waited out the duration of the quarantine until, you know, we have a vaccine and things are really safe to return to business. But as Newsom said, I think in a press conference last week, he's going to be really stubborn about reopening theme parks because they're taking a health first 
approach. I mean, we saw what happened over the summer when Los Angeles County specifically, you know, reopened indoor dining very quickly. And we had this huge surge in summer cases. So I think officials are now taking a more cautious approach. Tarpley Hit, reporter at the Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, there's a lot to look out for on election night, which is quickly approaching. One of the biggest concerns is that there could be chaos at the polls, and we won't know who wins on election night. Some of the other things to look out for will be poll watchers for fear of voter intimidation, how long it will take for mail-in ballots to be counted, and litigation that could follow. For more on what could go right or wrong on election night, we'll speak to Mark Niquette, national government reporter at Bloomberg News. Right. Well, a poll watcher is somebody who's approved to represent either political parties or candidates inside of polling locations to uh, essentially observe the balloting, also when ballots are counted. And typically these folks are there to sort of observe if there are any problem and take note of any issues that could be used to file a lawsuit, for example, if they want to challenge what's happening inside the polls. And generally just to sort of get a handle on what's happening and report back to the candidates or the parties. Uh, The concern this year is that these poll watchers could become active challengers. They could actively challenge the right of somebody to vote or challenge ballots that are cast. And the concern is this could be sort of a, a strategy to disrupt the polling process or just create chaos at the polls. And it sort of stems from comments that President Trump has made about encouraging his supporters to become volunteers, to be poll watchers and go to the polls, even if they're not sort of approved to be inside the polling locations to observe. And the Republican Party says, look, we're not going to intimidate any voters. We're just there as part of the normal process to watch what happens and validate the results. It's sort of an important check on the process and allows folks to feel comfortable that the outcome was fair and the process was correct. But there are going to be a lot of them out there. According to the RNC, they're looking for about 50,000 volunteers to do this. And Democrats are mobilizing their own volunteers But they do say that they're given rigorous training on what to look out for and and how to at least report some of that stuff. Voting rights advocates point out that the laws are pretty clear that these challengers can't interfere with voting or intimidate voters. And if that happens, they can be removed. And, you know, there's going to be plenty, like you said, folks from both sides sort of observing the process and monitoring to make sure that there isn't any trouble at the polls. But I think the concern is that it could be a volatile situation if we have, you know, a bunch of folks from both sides showing up at these polls, particularly if they're not approved poll watchers that could create trouble with, you know, interactions with voters or confrontations with voters waiting to vote. Another thing that a lot of people are worried about is having this kind of drawn out election night, not really knowing right after all the polls close, you know, maybe we get this really early the next morning or something. But a lot of people are voting by mail because of the pandemic. I think some estimates say 40 to 50 percent of people are voting by mail this time around. So what are we looking out for on this front? Well, it's all going to be a factor of how close the race is, both nationally and in the key battleground states that are going to decide which candidate gets to 270 electoral votes. And the issue we have this year, like you said, is we have sort of unprecedented amount of mail-in voting combined with key battleground states that are going to take a long time to count these ballots. For example, one of the states that could be sort of the tipping point state in this election is Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is a a state that's new to mail-in voting. They just approved no-fault absentee voting last year. 
And with the pandemic, they're just seeing as many as 3 million votes cast by mail this year. And the problem is Pennsylvania also has a law that says you can't start processing and counting these mail-in ballots until 7 a.m. on Election Day. So if the law isn't changed between now and the election, it's almost guaranteed that Pennsylvania is going to have perhaps hundreds of thousands of ballots. They're not going to be able to count on Election Day, and they'll be outstanding to be counted after the election. So if you have a really close race, You won't be able to call Pennsylvania, and then we'll have this pool of outstanding ballots after the election that both campaigns can fight over to try and change whatever the election night margin of the in-person votes and the ballots that are counted on election night. So it's all sort of set up where we have, again, if the race is close, the possibility that we'll have a bunch of uncounted ballots across one or more states that are necessary to decide which candidate got to 270 electoral votes and the presidency. Yeah, and that could cause a few problems, too. Uh, A lot of Republicans are saying that their numbers are going to be turning out on election night. They're saying that early mail-in balloting favors Democrats. So it could look like President Trump is winning early on. And then, you know, you've got to wait till the mail-in ballots come. You know, if the Democrats get a bump there, it could look a little weird. So that's kind of one of these issues you keep hearing about going back and forth that you're just not going to know who wins on that night. Yeah, it could be a problem, like you said, where... It's pretty clear from the statistics we're seeing on early voting ballots being requested that overwhelmingly Democrats are favoring vote by mail, or at least are taking more of the vote by mail. And we think this is because President Trump has been pretty clear that he doesn't like mail-in voting. He's accusing it of being rife with fraud. And I think it's having an effect on encouraging more Republicans to vote in person on Election Day. So we could have the situation, like you said, where there's a couple of names for it. The red mirage, where the predominance of Republican in-person voting makes it look like President Trump has a lead over Joe Biden on election night. But then we have all these outstanding ballots that a lot of them will be cast by Democrats that could shift even the the outcome, the margin on election night. And, and maybe Biden takes the lead when these votes are counted. And it's sometimes called a, a big blue shift where after the election, when the outstanding ballots are counted, the margins flip. So we could have the situation where we have an election night where it looks like President Trump's the winner. And some of the concerns from Democrats is that, you know, the president will just declare the race over, right? That I won, essentially, right. you know, the votes are in, at least on election night. And, you know, there's fraud or problems with these mail-in ballots that haven't been counted and we shouldn't count them or try and challenge them somehow. So again, if the race is really close, it at least sets up the potential that we could have a big fight or these uncounted ballots after the election to decide who won. And the last question, very briefly, lawsuits. Could these possibly extend any type of result? And these would be challenges to these uncounted absentee ballots primarily where you could challenge whether the signature was proper or if the county election clerks counted in the same way across the state. Multiple challenges that could happen that could drag out the process of counting the ballots or getting a final result, even into messing with the deadlines for the Electoral College meeting to, to sort of formally select who the president is. Mark Niquette, national government reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.